does the term radical mean to you? If you were to truly examine the love of God and the impact the salvation He offers has on our lives, there are many ways to describe those influences, but they are nothing less than that very term. Welcome to A Walk in the Word, where we bring you the Sunday sermons from Providence Baptist Church Gaston's worship services. In this week's sermon, Pastor John Friedrich dives into why both the actions and the outcome are truly beyond the norm. Let's join in as Pastor Friedrich preaches a message entitled, The Radical, from Romans chapter 5. All right, well, it's good to be in the Lord's house with you guys this morning as we gather around God's Word and see what He has to offer us this morning. So, if you would, as I said, we'll be in the book of Romans chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 6 through 11, so if you would follow along with me with that. For when we were with, yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received atonement. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we gather around your word this morning, we are a grateful people, Lord. We are truly uh, thankful that we have had this chance to lift your name in praise and worship and uh, to hear your word taught in Sunday school, Lord. And now as we enter, enter into the worship hour, Lord, we just ask that you help us open our hearts and our minds, uh, that we might be receptive to your word, that we might allow the words that we hear today take root in our lives. And Lord, let them bear fruit in such a way that you are glorified uh, with our actions. And Lord, I know I'm not worthy to be the one to stand here and present your word to those that have gathered. I just ask that you take me and use me as your instrument. Uh, move anything out of the way that could in any way interfere with the, the message, Lord, pride, selfishness, distraction, whatever it might be, Lord, just take it all away. It's, uh, I'm an empty vessel. Fill me with your spirit that the words that I speak would be only of your doing and nothing of my own. And Lord, as a church, help us to continue to move forward. Help us to always be outwardly looking to the community around us, Lord. Be focused on fulfilling your will for our our role as a church to be your hands and feet in the community to show your love, to show your hope that only you can offer. And Lord, as individuals, let us look for opportunities to share your word, to share your salvation, that others might come to know you as your Lord and Savior in a world that is has no hope and that offers nothing for eternal redemption. And Lord, forgive us of the times that we've sinned against you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, when I think uh, when I mention the word radical, what kind of comes to mind in in your head? Does it it typically invokes the idea of someone who's kind of an extreme uh, in their views or something along those lines? Uh, and this view could be a, a, a myriad of different things. It could be political, it could be religious, it could be really any topic when it comes right down to it that you could become a radical about. Extreme views exist on most pretty much any subject matter. And classification can be applied by anyone uh, with more than what we consider a moderate take on that particular matter. Uh, 
But realistically, the term is usually applied to any person or situation that is outside what we might consider to be the norm. In many cases throughout history, those who've acted in a manner that showed some sort of extreme dedication to their cause, uh, oftentimes political, uh, were seen as radical as well. Now, bringing things a little closer to home, those who hold true to their faith, who hold true to their belief system, are often branded as radicals. Those who hold true to their faith in a world that cult, our culture is trying to evolve and trying to change what those beliefs are. Those who are unwilling to evolve, those who are unwilling to cave in to the pressures of a society that demands that you accept their progressive, modernistic, and morally bankrupt agenda might be considered radical by a lot of people. Now Jesus himself was considered to be a radical by many people. His views seemed extreme to most at the time, particularly in light of the very visible and public display of religious legalism that was so common during that day that was being pushed by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus came in, though, he came in preaching an entirely new gospel, one that flew in the face of practically everything that had been taught amongst the Jews, and even in some cases the Gentiles up to that point. After centuries, even millenniums, of teachings that said you sought the favor and forgiveness of God through sacrifice and good works, now Jesus comes along teaching what could only be considered a radical idea that no one is good enough to enter into God's presence no matter how holy, no matter how religious you may act. In fact, the only hope that people had for reconciliation was of, of, with God would be through Jesus himself. Jesus presented, presented himself as the only avenue by which one could be reconciled to God. We see this in John 14, 6, where he says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now you can imagine the response that this evoked into, uh, from all these people that for so long had lived in a legalistic type approach to religion. This was unheard of. I mean, think about it. No matter how good you were, no matter how well you adhered to the laws of the Pharisees, it wouldn't be enough. It wasn't enough. Even people who dedicated their entire life to serving others, sacrificing all the comforts typically available, the people like Mother Teresa and others like her, even with all the good that they had done, they would still find themselves unacceptable to God, except through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Now this was certainly radical thinking. And while this is by definition certainly a correct application of the word, if you look it up in the dictionary, there's actually a very interesting definition that is included with the term radical. And it's often overlooked. One of the definitions that I found when I looked this word up, it says relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something. 
think about that. Relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something. And as we go along this morning, I think you're going to see how this term is actually quite applicable to those who proclaim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. When we look at this particular definition of the word, we can't help but be pointed to something at the very core of our beliefs. Something that is the very foundation for how we live our lives and interact with others as believers. And this is, of course, the impact that Jesus Christ has on a life that is embracing the work of the cross. And this makes sense when we recall the words of Paul in his letter to the church at Corinth. Remember what he said to the church at Corinth about the, the, what occurs to a person, uh, uh, happens to a person who accepts Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a, what? A new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Pair that with what we said about the term radical. Relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something. A new creature. Something totally different than what existed before. In other words, a change that is radical or affects the fundamental nature of something. It's incredible, transformational, transformational and unmistakable as the work of God and God alone. But today I want to look at three different aspects of this process. Three different aspects of radical process and how it applies to us. And it all begins with the fact that we are radically loved. That we are radically loved. God's love for us makes no sense from a human standpoint. It exists devoid of any expectation of or of reciprocation. In fact, it exists devoid of any expectation at all. Because think about it. If God's love for us had any sort of expectation, then it would become what? Conditional. Conditional on that expectation being met. He would love us if we did such and such. He would love us if we were so and so. But instead, God's love for us is unconditional, without conditions. We have to meet no standard. We have to meet no expectation for God's love to be applied to us. It is without expectation and it is without exhaustion. It doesn't wear out. It doesn't end. It doesn't wane, fade, diminish, or in any way change. And this is complete in contrast to what we as human beings would expect. I mean, think about it. How hard would it be to love someone who completely and constantly betrayed you? Someone who continually neglected you, ignored you, perhaps even acted on a regular basis like they wanted nothing to do with you. Someone whose outward behavior would indicate to others that they had no interest in you. I can't imagine anybody staying in a relationship like that for very long. Yet that describes our relationship with Jesus many of the days that we live. And perhaps frequently. 
David Platt in his book Radical Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream makes this comment. He says, God beckons storm clouds and they come. He tells the wind to blow and the rain to fall and they obey immediately. He speaks to the mountains, you go there. And he says to the seas, you stop there and they do it. Everything in all creation responds in obedience to, in the, to the Creator until we get to you and me. And then we have the audacity to look God in the face and say, no. Think about that. Everything in creation obeys God except us. What's more, let's consider how the relationship was initiated. With human beings, relationships typically begin with some kind of common ground, common interest, perhaps even a common attraction. But this is how Jesus initiates his relationship with us. He approaches his enemy. That's right. Someone who has no real desire for any fellowship, let alone a relationship. But longs for not just a relationship, but a lifelong commitment. You see, we have to remember, Jesus didn't die for good men and women. He died for his enemies. When we hear on the news or we read of how someone gave their life for someone else, that person responded because that person saw someone as good, someone who was worth dying for, meaning the decision is based on them being perceived as being a good person. Human love is invariably based on the attractiveness of the object of that love. And I don't mean just in the physical sense. A family member, a brother or sister in combat, a teacher protecting their students. In every case, the person they are laying their life down is someone they have some means of a relationship with. But from God's view, we don't seek Him. We rebel against Him constantly. In some cases, we show Him hatred. We don't have a relationship with Him, at least initially. We don't want Him in our lives for the most part. We are naturally opposed to Him and seen as His enemy. James 4.4 points this out where he says, "Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is an enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now while we are commanded to love our enemies, how many of us can say that we would love someone who treated us this way? Not just love them from an emotional sense, but love them enough to offer our lives for theirs, even as they hate and despise us. Let's take a look back at what Paul said in our verses this morning. Let's see how he describes us, the ones who God willingly offered his son, that Jesus willingly laid his life down for. Paul describes us here with four words. He calls us without strength or powerless. Verse 6. He calls us also in verse 6 as ungodly. Verse 8. Sinners. Verse 10. Enemies. This is how Paul describes who Jesus died for. And in so doing, he tells us that God's love was totally unmotivated. His actions totally unjustified by anything in us. 
Because this love is unmerited. This love is not dependent on us. And because of that, it will never change. There is no other way to describe this except it being a radical love. So this is how it all begins. There is a radical love that God has for us that defies all reason from our standpoint. And because of that radical love, He offers us the opportunity to be radically saved. Let's step back for a second and review the fundamentals of why we need to be radically saved in the first place. Let's lay the foundation for why this is such a crazy idea. The first thing to remember is that no one is exempt. No one escapes the need for redemption. Remember Romans 3.23? We've talked about this many times. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Is there anybody walking this earth today or in the past or in the future that does not need the redemption of God? Absolutely not. Other than Christ Himself. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so here is the baseline. Here is the starting point and the reality for every single human being past the age of accountability. You are a sinner. You are condemned to an eternity of suffering in hell. That is the baseline. That is a starting point that we begin at. And remember, before you start arguing that you have not made a choice, remember John 3.18 that tells us, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's right. If you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are already condemned. Remember, not making a choice is still a choice. And no amount of good deeds, donations, kind gestures, nothing can even begin to chip away at the death sentence that we carry. It's in full force and nothing that you can do can change that. Zit. Nada. And you have no hope in this world. But see, this is where it becomes radical in its approach. Jesus Christ is the one who will judge all people. This means that He is the one who will pronounce your sentence of unbelief. And that makes sense. I mean, after all, Jesus is a righteous and sovereign God. It is against Him that every one of our sins are the greatest offense. So it would make perfect sense that He would be the one to judge us in that time of judgment that we all will face one day. You see, sin is a perversion of God's perfect design. If we go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, we see that we were created in the very image of God. We were designed to be, look like God. 
And when we sin, we mar that likeness. We pervert that image. Sin diminishes the beauty and the holiness that we were designed to reflect from God. And when we sin, we, we take a step outside. Outside of the purposes for which we were created. And thus violate God's moral law. And because of that, we are accountable to Him. So whether it harms us or someone else, we've got to remember something, that every time we sin, every sin we uh, commit is an act against ultimately a holy God. It may not seem like it affects anybody else. It may be secret to only us. But even those sins are an offense to our holy and righteous God. Effectively, He is the victim of our sinful actions. And add to that, that God Himself in His perfect holiness is devoid of any guilt or association of sin. Remember, God is pure and He is perfect. So when we learn... <clears throat> of how this pure and perfect God stepped in, intentionally took our punishment, the punishment that you and I deserved, that we rightly deserved, himself being innocent of any trespass. It's absolutely mind-blowing and a concept that is so radical that many find it hard to grasp and thus they find it difficult to embrace it. I mean, when you think about it, the God of the universe who owes us absolutely nothing sacrificed everything to his very life. That we are deserving of being forever separated from him and we might be reconciled to Him and justified through Him. Now understand once again, we are both justified and reconciled. Not once in the Bible does God need to be reconciled to us. That enmity, that enemy status is alone on our part. It was us who needed to be reconciled to God, not God to us. God has done nothing that He needs to be reconciled to us. We are the ones who are the offense. R. Ken Hughes makes this comment. He says, The problem, of course, was the radical holiness of God and the radical sinfulness of man, a dilemma which the Old Covenant was powerless to reconcile. But the actions we see of Jesus through His death and resurrection in the New Testament brought about this unlikely and unheard of solution to the problem. The truth is truly radical. But you see, that's not where it ends. The radical love of God that prompted the opportunity for us to be radically saved leads to one yet further radical concept, and that is that we are radically changed. The true salvation experience is one that brings about conversion. That is a complete change 
in that a person is referenced previously by Paul in his letter to church at Corinth. And a good way of putting this is conversion includes a radical change of mind which produces a desire for separation from the world. When we get saved, we no longer have any use for this world. The things of this world don't appeal to us anymore. We exist in it to glorify God and to make disciples, but it is not where our heart is anymore. You remember the definition of radical we mentioned earlier, relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something? Let's take a look at Paul, for example. And I started getting into this in our Sunday school hour. Remember he started off as Saul. And this is where we were first introduced to him, by the name of Saul. We see a very highly educated, very motivated Jew who was absolutely determined to wipe out this new movement <clears throat> that had begun involving the person of Jesus Christ. We saw in our Sunday school hour how during the stoning of season, uh, Stephen, he consented to his death, even watching over the coats of those that participated in his execution. All the while, Stephen proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Saul would travel great distances to root them out. Root out all these Christians for them to be arrested and in some cases executed for their faith. But then one day, one day on the road to do the very thing that he had been doing <clears throat> for so long and working so hard to accomplish to rid the, the world of these followers of Jesus. He had an encounter with the very person he was at war with. But this encounter was unique because this in his encounter was with a man that had been put to death. He encountered Jesus Christ who was hung on the cross to die. Who had died on that cross. And was resurrected. And this man's heart, Saul, who had been hardened toward the Savior, suddenly did a complete 180. He went from doing everything he could to persecute and to, to rid the world of Christians to becoming the very thing that he hated and despised, a Christian himself. It brought about a change that swung the pendulum of his passion and determination so resolutely that he became effectively the poster child of the very people he had tried to destroy for so long. When I think about this transformation, I'm reminded of a promise that God had made to the nation Israel through the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 11.19 it says, I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and I will give them a heart of flesh. Now while this verse was spoken through the prophet Ezekiel to the nation Israel, it demonstrates for us the power of the change that when a person accepts the salvation that God so freely offers us. And suddenly we find ourselves drawn to the things of God. 
our ability to love, our desire for divine communion, our desire to study the Word, our evolution towards godliness, our desire to pray. It all comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit that occurs at salvation. It is because of Him that we are led to do these things that draw us back. And honestly, if you have made a profession of faith and you don't feel these things, perhaps you should step back and ask yourself why. Because a salvation experience is a conversion experience and if you don't see, feel these things, then perhaps there needs to be an evaluation of what really happened. The salvation experience brings about radical change. We see it in the apostles. Very different reactions before Christ's resurrection and after. You remember at first, the very first hint of danger. Because of their faith, we see them what? We see them scatter and run. They arrest Jesus and suddenly they're all over the place. They're hiding. Fear was the order of the day. But then after meeting with the resurrected Messiah and having the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we see men that not only stand up to the religious leaders of the day and inform them that they're going to obey God rather than men, but every one of them will end up being martyred for their faith except John, who was exiled. What would cause such a radical transformation, both in the conduct of the disciples and their attitudes? The answer we find in the New Testament, and that is that Jesus was raised from the dead. There lies yet another radical concept. It's not that his heart had stopped and CPR was administered to restore life. No, we are talking about three days in the tomb, dead. And in his resurrection, he came back in victory over the grave and hell. It brought about change so fundamental that their faith governed their willingness to be offered up even in some of the most horrific of ways. The apostles martyred. Some of their stories of martyrdom are, are just horrific. But unfortunately, some look at the idea of Christianity and see it as simply just adding Jesus to their life. Hey, I like the idea of Jesus. I like this concept that these churches are talking about. I think I'm going to add that to my ideas or my, my book of my, my gathering of interests. I'm going to have that as yet one thing that I consider almost like a hobby. But a Christian life is not one where Jesus has been added. A Christian life is one that is consumed by the person of Jesus. Where every aspect of that person's life sees the influence of a Savior. Not just during church service, not just when they open their Bible. It is where Jesus is your life. The idea of a radical faith is one that has become increasingly both unpopular and more un uncommon. Because our culture today, unfortunately, has offered up a watered-down Christianity that is safe and comfortable and casual. A faith that truly, if apostles saw it, would be unrecognizable to them. And honestly, to many of the saints that have gone before us, the sentiment was expressed by David Platt also in the same book that I mentioned before where he says, I could not help but think that somewhere along the way we had missed what was radical about our faith and replaced it with that which was comfortable. 
So when we consider how radically we have been changed, how radically we have been saved, and even to this very moment how radically we are loved, it begs the question, how radically are you willing to live as a result? Are we going to quietly conform to the pressures of modern society, living our faith in a compartmentalized way in such that we don't offend? Or are we going to live our faith boldly, radically, unashamedly, in such a way as to make it clearly known to those that see us that something, somebody, has made a revolutionary, radical change in our life? So much so that we can't help but to share it and make it known. So much so that we stand out in the crowd, clearly set apart from the world. Paul reminds us to not be conformed to this world. So we need to be the radical that lives, that lives their faith boldly, openly, and unashamedly in light of the radical actions that got us here. Know this, folks. There is a God that has a radical love for you. You give Him no reason to love you. You give Him no reason to reach out to you, to offer the salvation that makes no sense. And yet He does. The question is, what have you done with that? Do you consider continue to live your lives your way? Do you continue to live your lives trying to get to heaven your way? That while may make sense from a human standpoint, are not biblical. Are you willing to open your heart to the radical change that Christ's salvation offers? The decision is up to you. Let's stand as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Fathers, we come before your throne once again this morning. We thank you for this time we've had together. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for your, the salvation that you offer us. Lord, we know that we in no way have anything to offer you in exchange. We have nothing, that we have nothing to offer you to make ourselves worthy or in any way justified. And yet your love for us is so radical that you're willing to go to unbelievable lengths to allow us to be reconciled to you. Lord, it's my desire that if anybody is here today that has never offered or never made that decision, never made the decision to accept the salvation you so freely offer, Lord, let them be burdened in such a way before they leave here today that they feel nothing more than the need to come forward and give their life to you. And Lord, we just ask that you have your will and way in all the lives that are here today. And Lord, we love you and praise you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in next time for another Walk in God's Word. Podcasts are available in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Tune In, CastBox, Downcast, and Beyond Pod. Search for and subscribe to Providence Baptist Church's 
space hyphen space Gaston Sermons. Until next time, may God bless you as we await his joyful return. Hi, this is John Friedrich, pastor of Providence Baptist Church. It's my prayer that our time together has helped you grow in your walk with God, or maybe he's even used it to guide you to discover the wonderful gift of salvation. If you're ever in our area, we would love for you to come worship with us. Our address is Providence Baptist Church, 977 Metafield Road, Gaston, South Carolina, 29053. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so through our website at www.providencembcgaston.com or email us at providencembcgaston at gmail.com. Again, thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to you joining us next time as we take a walk in the Word.